Amen. Thanks, guys. Uh, before we look at the scriptures, I have a quick announcement, and that is just kind of preparing us strategically for what we're doing at this Christmas time. Uh, we've encouraged everybody to be celebrating Christmas together as a strategic way to connect with your neighbors about who Jesus is and, and why we celebrate Jesus this time of year. Um, specifically, Christmas Eve, we'll have two services. So we'll have a service uh, at 4 p.m. and at 5.30 p.m. Uh, it's a fun service where we'll do, it'll be a little different than our normal worship service. We'll uh, do a scripture reading, sing a song, scripture reading song, kind of back and forth following the, the themes of hope, love, joy, and peace. Um, we're going to have a children's story time. We're going to have cookies and cocoa in the hallway. Um, so Christmas carols, cookies and cocoa. I'm trying to think what else is going to happen. Children's story time. I'm going to give a brief message. I won't rant and rave as long as normally I do, uh, talking about Jesus that night. But it's just a great time. Oh, yeah, the candles. That's the coolest part. We're going to have fire. I love fire. So we're going to have candles also at the end of the service. So just a great time. And this is a great thing to invite your friends, maybe that aren't connected to church, uh, just folks that read and study these trends in our culture will say that Christmas time is a time that folks that aren't connected to Jesus or connected to a church are going to be more open and interested in coming. Um, so we've got cards in the back, and I would encourage you to grab one of those cards, invite your friends. It's a great time to connect with people about this thing, right? Like our culture is in love with Christmas, but maybe doesn't know Christ. And so this is an opportunity for us uh, to talk to them about that and about our faith. So I encourage you to grab those cards. Those are like little invitation cards you can grab and invite your friends uh, all right, we're going to spend some time now looking at the scriptures together. We're going to be in Psalm 95 as we focus on the theme of joy. You can see joy on the wall is lit up. That's our theme for the week. As we're trying to think about during this Christmas season, the different things that Jesus brings into our life through being born as a man, through dying on the cross for us, rising from the dead. And so Christmas time is kind of a focus on the incarnation, how Jesus localizes God's presence for us by coming and being born among us. The theme is joy, and if you don't have a Bible, you can grab one of the black Bibles. You'll see some black Bibles nearby. Grab that Bible, and I believe it's page 499. Page 499, we're going to be looking at Psalm 95. And Psalm 95 is a text that is going to kind of tell us how to rejoice, in a sense. It's going to focus on technique, if you will, like what does joy look like? So we're going to have some real clear application of, okay, this is what God is calling me to. God is calling me to do joy, in a sense. But before we look at that, I want to just state up front that we often have this problem, especially during a busy, hectic holiday time, where we get mixed up about joy. We get mixed up about joy, and we get distracted and think that we should be rejoicing in the joy, so to speak, right? We start focusing on the practice of joy and think, man, this this joy of the holiday time is not as joyful as I want it to be, so I can't have joy because the joy is not that joyful, right? Are you following me? I know that's a little confusing. Um, here's an example. I was driving through a parking lot yesterday, and it was making me angry, okay? Because it's Christmas time, and there are just more people at stores now, right? And so those little chaotic pieces of the holiday season can kind of steal our joy. And I, and I would argue that what's happening is I'm getting distracted by the practice of joy instead of focusing on the source of the joy. Does that make sense? Like a festival, a season is a way we practice joy. The reason is God. The reason for our joy is God. And so we just have to keep looking back to him, even as we try to practice joy through festivals, through singing, as we just did, through different ways that we actually express our joy. We have to remember, well, why am I joyful? I'm, I'm joyful because of who God is. 
And Jesus talks about this specifically in the Gospel of Luke. Um, so we're going to read Psalm 95. We'll, we'll get there eventually. But let me say this about the Gospel of Luke. In the Gospel of Luke, he's talking to religious people who are not very joyful about their relationship to God. And they're frustrated that Jesus seems to love lost people. He seems to love wanderers. And so Jesus gives them three stories in a row that all repeat this key concept that there is great rejoicing in heaven when someone is reconnected with God. Over and over again, it's the story of the lost sheep and the story of the lost coin. And then finally, the the big story, the story of the lost brothers, the, the parable of the prodigal son. All three of those stories, there's rejoicing in heaven when God reconnects with one of his creatures. And so essential to our joy is that relationship we're called to have with him. God is the source of our joy. He's, he's the reason that we would have joy. So now we're going to read Psalm 95 that's going to say, okay, rejoice this way. Why? Well, because of God. Let's look at it in Psalm 95. It says, oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. Therefore I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. It's kind of an unhappy ending to our text this morning. But a warning, it's really a warning, don't deny yourself the joy that can be found only in God. Do not harden your heart. He says, today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. He's calling to you. Some of you might be thinking, well, I don't, I don't know if I hear his voice. He's, he's speaking. He's speaking to you. He's calling you to himself. He says, don't harden your heart. Come and find joy in a relationship with him. Let me pray for us. God, we pray that through your word, you would shock us uh, back awake to the reality that you are speaking to us, that you do love us. And God, at Christmas time, we celebrate that we know you love us because you came and you lived among us. You were one of us. You suffered as we have suffered. Hebrews 4.15 says that you, you were tempted in every way as we are yet without sin. So God, thank you that you... You came after us. You enacted this rescue operation to be, to be born as a baby in a Bethlehem stable. So God, help us to just see your pursuit of us, see your love for us, see your passion for us, and to respond with joy. I pray that your spirit would meet us here, that your spirit would open our eyes, your spirit would take away the distractions, would empower us supernaturally to rejoice in you. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So as I said, we need to distinguish, and the text gets into it a little bit, you know, the reason for our joy is God. It's saying rejoice in 
God, right? Don't just rejoice in yourself. Don't just rejoice in how great your holiday is. Don't just rejoice in how great the band is. Although the band was great this morning. Good job. Thank you. That helps our joy, right? When the holiday is awesome, it's fun. There's a snowball effect when you enjoy a great holiday, when you've got great music, when you've, you know, sometimes it can make that rejoicing easier, but we've got to keep focusing on the reason. The reason for the joy is God, the rock of our salvation, who he is. And that's what Jesus was getting at in those parables in Luke 15, right? He was saying, it's this restoration. That's what the rejoicing in heaven is about, this lost sinner that has come back to God and God rejoices over that. Heaven rejoices over that. So we should rejoice over being connected with God, being forgiven, having that relationship with him restored. So then as we look at Psalm 95, it's going to give us kind of three lenses on what joy looks like. Number one is that joy is noisy. We're going to see that joy is noisy. It's about making a noise. It's got to be expressed. For those of us from an Anglo culture, we have to be reminded of that, right? I kind of come from a quiet culture. I have to be reminded that I am to make noise. God calls me to that. Joy is also creaturely. He's going to talk about sheep and shepherd language. Joy is creaturely. We are not the creator. We are the creature. That helps us in our joy. And then finally, we're going to see that joy is humbling. It kind of puts us in our place. We have to submit to God. Joy is humbling. So first of all, let's look at the idea that joy is noisy. Uh, We see this real clearly in the first verse. Psalm 95.1, oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Those who love God are commanded to sing about it. Now, this is, can be a little difficult because some of you just can't sing, right? I know, I've heard you, you're terrible, I'm sorry. Um, but I want to clarify for you, we're going to give you a lot of help to do this, right? So singing is, is not just being perfectly beautiful with your voice, Right? Like some of you can't make pitch, you know what I mean? Like you hear a sound and you try to match that sound and it, just, it doesn't work, right? Like, and that's okay. We love you. We're glad you're here. We put the words on the screen so you can say the words. You can join us in our singing and you can make a, what the next verse says, a joyful noise, okay? So the call is to singing. We're going to sing together. Colossians chapter 3, Ephesians chapter 5 in the New Testament says this is something that Christians are to do also. It's not just like a weird Old Testament thing. They sang in the Old Testament, and today we just sit around quietly. No, we, we're to sing also. We're to praise God. We're to express the joy. And uh, it says, sing first. We want to be musical. We want to have great songs. We do that here. We've, we're led by, by great folks that have great gifts. But also, you, you do what you can do, right? Like, you deliver what you can deliver, and it's good to vocalize whatever you can vocalize. And so that next verse says, let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. So if beautiful, perfect singing is a little bit beyond your grasp, we'll, we'll try for a joyful noise. Try just saying the words that we put on the screen. We've planned them, right? We've filtered them. We've got good biblical words that'll help you, that'll guide you in a unified way to rejoice in God. One more note, some of you are musical, but you're just not used to our music, and we publish every week the songs that we're going to sing, and you can go online, you can find it on our webpage, Um, you can go to our Facebook page, I know we publish it there, Um, yeah, you can go to our Facebook, even if you don't have Facebook, you can find Facebook online, I don't know how that works, somehow that works, you can go to our Grace Bible Church Colleen Facebook page, and you can find the songs that we're going to sing each week, so you can kind of get ready, right, so some of you are like halfway there, and you're like, if I just knew the song better, I could sing, We'll, we'll go, Study up and get ready for it, right? 
And then it says, going to make a joyful noise. So this is, so folks that aren't quite as good, I want to define what joyful noise means. It's literally a war cry. That's what that Hebrew word is. I think it's ruach. I can't, yeah, ruach. It's like a screaming war cry. So for those of you that aren't as good at pitch and you're not as beautiful, think about it in those terms, right? That's what a joyful noise is. You're making a a war cry to God. You're expressing out loud, God is good. God is great. He is the king. He's the champion, right? Think of it in war language. He is the one that that has dealt the death blow to Satan, to sin, to death through his death on the cross. So you're proclaiming that he is the rock of salvation. So we've got to make a noise. One of the, I was kind of debating over how to explain this point, and I thought about make a scene. That was another way I thought we might, you know, like we are to make a scene. Uh, here's some, somebody that's like screaming for somebody famous in a parking lot. Um, there are places in our society where we do this, right? Where we'll maybe scream for your favorite band, or you'll, you'll maybe scream for your favorite sports team. Anybody do that, right? But then it's hard for you to scream in church. We're, we're inviting you to do this, Right? The scripture is commanding you here in Psalm 95 to scream and to yell in church. Now, when we sing songs, we're doing it in a unified way. We want it to be orderly, not like chaotic and scary. We don't want to be weird, scary church, right? That's why we try to do it in a unified way. Um, But we're inviting you to make noise. Uh, One of the ways that I think is helpful to think about this is just to kind of think about where you start, your starting point. Like, say on a scale from 1 to 10, uh, when it comes to expressiveness, I'm probably a 5, right? I'm probably in the middle. I can be expressive, but I'm not a naturally real expressive person, right? Like me expressing during a sermon is about as expressive as I get all week long, right? I'm a lot quieter throughout the week. Uh, So I'm kind of a five. So I feel like God is calling me to kind of push and, and maybe come to a six and make a war cry to God, right? Like make some noise and express myself. Some of you, you might be uh, a one. And for you, the trick is, go ahead and read the words on the screen, okay? Make some kind of sound, right? Get something out. Begin practicing some expression. Some of you just want to sit there silently and frown. Let's, let's bring that up a notch, okay? Some of you on that 1 to 10 scale, you're a 10. And I just want to say, for those of you that are 10, I'm sorry, right? Because you think we're like this sick, dead, boring church, okay? <laughs> I'm sorry, but hey, you're the leaders among us. So I want to invite you. You just push it on up to 11 and you, you lead the way, right? Like you help us to get there. And so just kind of think of where you are in that scale and say, hey, God is, God is calling me to make a scene. God is calling me to make a noise. God is calling me to actually proclaim who he is. And joy, biblically, is an outward expression of happiness in God. Now, this is in distinction to this thing that often gets taught in Christian circles that joy is a secret heart thing that nobody can see. Have you ever heard that? Joy, my old pastor used to say, joy is deep, 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 deep down in my heart, right? Like, um, so there is something true about that expression, right? Here's the thing that's true about that. As Christians, there's a paradox that even when you are crying and you're facing the most horrible thing you've ever gone through, there can be a deep, hidden, spiritual joy within you. That is true. So I just want to affirm that. That can really be true. And sometimes you can supernaturally, kind of in this paradox way, you can supernaturally experience joy in Jesus while you're crying or while you're sick or while you're broken. So that is true. And that is one of the unique kind of strangenesses of, of walking with Jesus. 
but that's not the normal definition of joy. So we just need to kind of press ourselves. Normally, joy is celebrating out loud that God is good. That's normally what joy means. So much so that even in the book of Acts, when Paul and Silas get thrown into prison, I think it's somewhere in kind of the middle chapters of the book of Acts. Actually, it happens a lot, right? Um, They get thrown into prison. They probably cried a little bit when they got beat up. I'm sure there was some sadness, but then it says they're singing and praising God in prison, right? So there's this, this outward expression, even in the worst of circumstances, an outward expression that God is good that God is our hope, that God is our Savior. It says, let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. It's another helpful little piece of it is particularly thanking him for things that he has done and who he is, right? Thanksgiving helps us to grow in this process. Again, it repeats, let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise for the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods. So again, it keeps taking us back to he's the reason It's because of who he is and what he's done for us. He is why we would express joy. We don't express joy just because the music is awesome. We don't express joy just because the holiday is awesome, right? And that's really helpful for us to think about at Christmas time. Christmas time can be a great opportunity, right? It's like a, a place for us to express joy. Having a festival is a way to do that. Old Testament people of God, they had all these festivals that God commanded, right? God would say, practice this festival, um, eat good food, do these weird, you know, artistic things to celebrate that I am king, that I am God, that you can trust me. And so it's great for us to practice that kind of thing in the New Testament as well. And there's a whole spectrum in Christian history, right? There's one extreme where they started kind of commanding lots of extra festivals, you know, and priests and bishops were saying, you have to do this festival, you got to do this festival, you got to do this holy day, and you got to do that holy day. So there was a reaction during the Reformation, and a lot of our Puritan forefathers were like, man, that's crazy. The New Testament says you can't command all those things. You can't bind your consciences to that. So there was a reaction where a lot of the Puritans were like, we just shouldn't even do that because it's become idolatrous because it's being forced on people. It's like a heavy burden being put on their shoulders. And I'd say, we're kind of trying to live in that in-between where we would say, of course, you can't command holidays, right? Like we're not commanding that you put up a Christmas tree in your house. We're just saying you should rejoice in Jesus. And then we're saying, as a church, we've decided to focus on certain themes during this time of year. We've, we've decided to strategically connect with the culture who is celebrating Christmas in some way and say, hey, while the rest of the culture is celebrating Christmas, let's join in the general celebration and keep bringing our attention back to Jesus and use that as an opportunity to celebrate him and talk about him with our friends and neighbors that don't know him. But we have to remember in the back of our mind, it's not, there's no Bible verse that says you've got to practice Christmas, right? There's no Bible verse that says to, to do it this way. And we just have to keep that in the back of our mind. There's no like rule book, right? Um, we're not under the authority of, of some pope or some council that said you've, you've got to have a Christmas tree and you've got to put it up on this day and take it down on that. You know, like that's not, we have full freedom to celebrate Jesus as we see fit. So I want to encourage you to use holidays, use festivals for the glory of God, but don't feel burdened like you have to do that. And it's a weird time of year because some of you grew up with like uh, really hard holiday seasons, right? So this is a hard time for you. In some ways you want to kind of run from it. And I would just say, hey, just, just try to figure out some simple ways to celebrate Jesus during this time. Some of you had such a perfect, glorious 
celebration of holidays growing up that like nothing will ever compare to it, right? So there's this weird expectation game that we all go through, either sad memories or happy memories or maybe no memories. And I would just say we have a lot of freedom. Don't let anyone, the way it's described in Colossians, it says, don't let anyone judge you on how you celebrate Sabbaths or new moons or festivals, right? Don't let anyone judge you on that because there's no rule book on how to do that. But use these as opportunities to glorify God. That, that's the rule. 1 Corinthians 10 rule of in everything you do, glorify God. In everything you do, show the world how good God is. That's what we're called on to do. So use special events. Use weekly worship. We already kind of talked about that as well. You know, sing to Jesus together in weekly worship. And then finally, I'm going to give you one more little application that I think is helpful. Um, how many of you ever heard of this phrase we use in Christian culture called a quiet time? Have you ever heard of that? Quiet time. Some of you heard of that. So we would encourage you to get into a habit going into the new year. I'm going to talk about this a little later, like reading your Bible, uh, devoting some time to read your Bible or read a devotional book about Jesus, uh, pray, kind of meditate on the scriptures, kind of center yourself the beginning of your day or at the end of your day, taking some quiet time to say, man, I know Jesus loves me and I'm going to go serve him today, right? So often we call that a quiet time, but based on what the text is telling us here to make a joyful noise to the Lord, I say, hey, maybe your quiet time shouldn't be completely quiet. Maybe you should sing to the Lord in your time of devotion to him. Maybe you should speak out loud praises, talk about how great he is, make some noise at some level. So I just encourage you to maybe have a quiet time, but also maybe make part of your quiet time a noisy time, okay? That's just like a basic application of out loud expressing who God is, there's something really good about that for us. There's something therapeutic even as you, you know, read psychology about as we express what we believe that's good, it kind of helps us grow towards what is true as we speak it out loud. And so it's helpful to proclaim God's goodness. Okay, next point is joy is creaturely. He uses this shepherd sheep analogy. And I grabbed a picture here of a sheep to just kind of get us clear in our head over what God is saying when he describes us as a sheep. Here's kind of a goofy picture of a sheep, because if you don't know this, sheep are adorable, but they're also really stupid, okay? And so when we're saying that we're a sheep that needs a shepherd, right? Psalm 23 is a great psalm about this. The Lord is my shepherd, and what does he do? He cares for me. He feeds me. He protects me. What we're saying is we need that care. We need that leadership, we need the guidance. We need the food. We need the shelter. We, we can't really make it on our own. I've heard lots of different pastors joke about this, but you never will see a herd of wild sheep just running on their own. It doesn't exist, right? And so when we think back to the human experiment, as humans, we keep replaying the, the Adam and Eve sin, right? Where they reached out for the blessings of creation and said, I want the stuff of God, but I don't want... God himself. And when we do that, we're, we're busting up the creator-creature distinction. We're forgetting that we need our creator. We are creatures that live in humble dependence on our creator. And so in the same vein, he uses the word sheep here. In the same vein, when you forget that you're a sheep that needs a shepherd, when I start to think I can do life on my own, I start to think I can be a wild sheep, right? Like it's never worked for any other sheep, but I can do it. I can just rove the countryside, being a wild sheep, living my life. I don't care what God says. Well, that's going to end badly, okay? Human history shows us we've experimented again and again. When human beings try to live without God, we crash and burn. 
And so here he's calling us to remember, verse 3, the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. He really is great. He really is God. He really is king. And it says, in his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. So here's a way you can get there as you can meditate on creation. He's saying, look at the hills and the seas, the mountains, everything that he's made. When you look at creation and recognize that God is beyond this, right? This is the playing field he's put us in. We're the creatures. He's the creator. He lives beyond this. He is sovereign. He is other. He is holy. He is God. That helps us reorient ourselves, right? Remember, we live in a culture that is just day after day telling you he doesn't exist and this is all there is. Our culture is just screaming at us, at us again and again. We live in a secular age that says there is no God. We make whatever there is. This is the world. There's nothing else outside of it. And what the psalmist is calling us to do is to look at creation and say, there's a God that made this. And this is in his hands. And as we see that and as we meditate on it, that, that gives us back into that proper posture, right? That, that puts us back into the place of, I'm a, I'm a creature, And that's the only place of true joy. When I know, really, I am a sheep, but I'm a sheep that's well taken care of. And then I can read Psalm 23 and say, he's a good shepherd, and he is taking care of me. And that gives me reason for joy. So it goes on in verse 6. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture. We're the sheep of his hand. So again, he's, he's tying all this together with this analogy of sheep and shepherd, creator, creature, And in verse 6, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. I would argue that, again, he's giving you a way to express your creaturely joy, right? So what he's saying is that when you worship, when you kneel, when you bow down before God, you're expressing with posture who God is. Now, uh, posture varies from culture to culture, right? You go to different countries, different times in history, we'll have different worship postures. I think two postures by which we express this kind of thing in our our modern culture. One is just the bowing of the head, right? We usually in our church don't like lay prostrate on our face. Some Christians do that, right? We usually don't kneel on our knees. Some Christians do that. I was christened in an Episcopal church when I was a baby, and they had a little kneeler, which is pretty nice, right? It makes it easier to kneel down. Um, And so there's different ways to do this. In our culture, we tend to pray uh, by bowing our head. You ever seen that? Some of you have seen that, right? Uh, some, if you have kids, you teach them, okay, fold your hands, bow your heads, right? It's not like the Bible says you have to do that, and if you don't fold your hands or if you don't bow your heads, the lightning bolt will strike you, right? It's not like that, but it is a way of humbling and bowing yourself before God. And I would recommend that, and I would encourage you to experiment with other ways of doing that, praying at your bedside, on your knees, laying on your face, experimenting with these different ways of bowing before God. Again, these are ways to outwardly express joy. Say, I'm a creature and God is creator. Another way that we often see this in our culture is the the lifting of hands. And I don't understand the symbolism of that as well, but I think here, here's my stab at some of the symbols of that. One is, um, I know when I had little children, they were always doing this to me. They're reaching out to me, like like lift me up, right? And so there's a sense there of, of expressing humility. I think there's also kind of an openness of the lifted hands of like needing to receive from God with open hands. So some of you might have studied that more than me. I haven't seen a lot of explanations in scripture of, of what these things mean, but we have various postures 
by which we can express to God, you're the creator, I'm a creature. You're the shepherd, I'm a sheep. I need you to sustain me. I can't do life without you. So I'll challenge you, challenge myself at this time of year, especially that we would come back to simple and basic ways to express that God is king, that God is the Lord, that he is the one that we need to humble ourselves before. When you study it out in the New Testament, you see this transition um, where what was very concrete, very clear, very black and white in the Old Testament, you know, do the festival this way, bow this way, you know, a lot of clarity, a lot of harsh lines that were drawn in the Old Testament. That stuff is kind of deinstitutionalized in the New Testament. It's kind of delocalized, right? You no longer worship in this place, but you can worship anywhere, right? God no longer just inhabits this temple, but God inhabits through the Holy Spirit all followers of Christ, right? So there's this kind of the spreading of it, this deinstitutionalizing, this delocalizing that we see in the New Testament, but still it's good for us to express outwardly, God, I trust you. So ultimately it's about your heart bowing before him, but I would say you got to find ways to express that. you got to find ways to be noisy about it, to be physical about it, to demonstrate what you believe. And as you do that, as you practice those things, that's going to help you to remember what you actually believe. And this then kind of leads into our last point, and that is that joy is humbling. Joy is humbling. Here's where we have the kind of scary warning that comes into this passage. And so this warning is going to talk about this time where God saved his people during the Exodus, and then they rebelled against him. And they basically said, God, I wish you hadn't saved me, right? And then this is brought up again in the book of Hebrews towards the end of the New Testament, and it's expressed there saying, man, when we turn from Jesus, we're doing the same thing, right? In the Old Testament, God saves them from their slavery, and then people are like, God, I wish you hadn't saved me. I want to do life on my own without you, right? That's a lack of humility. In the same way in the New Testament, the author of Hebrews says, we can, we can do that as well. We can do the same thing. We can say, God, I don't need you to save me. I can do life on my own. So let's read the text. It's in Psalm 95, uh, just a little part of verse 7 and then going into verse 8. It says, today, if you hear his voice, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. So again, he's talking about, I saved these people, and then they still hardened their heart towards me. In verse 10, it says, for 40 years, I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. And so another way of saying this, C.S. Lewis says about hell that it's this, it's like this memorial to man's free choice. He says that hell is a place that we're, we're only in because we want to be there. Because we've said, God, I don't want to be with you. I don't want you. I don't want salvation. I don't want joy in you. I want to do life on my own. And that's ultimately what hell is. It's an eternity of trying to do life on our own, apart from God, apart from true joy in him. And the author here, the author in Hebrews repeating some of this language is saying, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Let me explain for just a minute what hardening of heart means. Uh, there are different Hebrew words used in the Old Testament when that word is used. But in general, it's, it's a toughening 
or a strengthening of our hearts, right? So there's this kind of, I, I've used the word coming up, kind of bowing up, right? Like when you try to look tough to somebody, you'll kind of puff out your chest. Have you ever do that, right? Um, like if I feel like someone's like threatening my family, right? I might like puff out my chest and stand in front of them. I'm trying to look tough. Um, and that's great in that situation, but we should, we should never do that to God, okay? And that's ultimately what hardening of the heart is. It's a, like puffing ourselves up and saying, I'm, I can do this. My heart is fine as it is, God. I don't need you to change my heart. I don't need you to save me. I want to do life on my own. And we're replaying that sin of Adam and Eve saying, I want your stuff, but I don't want you. It's a dangerous place to go. The scripture warns us, don't, don't do that. And another interesting little thing here, it says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. And some of you might be thinking, if you're kind of a, a spiritual skeptic, you might be saying, well, I've, he's never talked to me. I've never heard his voice. And I just w- want to warn you again with more specificity here. The scripture is clear that you have heard his voice. And the more you don't listen to him, the harder it will be for you to hear him. So scripture says day after day, he pours forth speech. The skies declare the glory of God. Romans 1 says, he is clearly seen in creation. If you walk outside and you see a sunset and you say there is no God, you are denying a voice that you've just heard. So he says, don't harden your heart. Don't say I can do life on my own. Don't say I don't need you, God. This is the God of eternal joy that's pursuing you in love and pursuing me in love. And we're to, we're to come to him and say, okay, I surrender. And so I, I know that's hard. I, I thought it might be helpful to say here is a, a humorous example of this from classical literature. So a character from classical literature that is an example of pride as opposed to humbling, right? Uncle Rico, if, you, if you're not familiar with this classical work, it's a uh, piece of film called Na- Napoleon Dynamite. And in this piece of film, we find the classic narcissist who's obsessed with himself. He's obsessed with his own greatness, right? Someone who becomes like, like a comedic trope, right? Like he becomes an emblem of someone who's self-absorbed with all the great things they can do now, all the great things they used to be able to do, right? I think he said when he was younger, he could throw the ball a quarter mile. Is that what he said? I can't remember exactly what it was. Um, Uncle Rico thinks he's so awesome. And sadly, what happens is the more you bow yourself up, the more you puff yourself up and say, I'm great. Look at what I've done. Look at what I could have done. Look at what I did do. Look at what I could have done if those other people didn't get in my way, right? Look at what I could have done if God had not been unfair to me. And we're, we're just like Uncle Rico. We're ridiculous, okay? So I'm telling you, in case your friends haven't told you yet, you, you look silly when you do that, right? I look silly when I do that. God calls on us to not bow up to God, to not puff ourselves up and talk about how great we are, but to recognize again and again our humble need of him, our humble need of this God of grace. So so he, he says, if you're hearing his voice, don't harden your heart. Come to him, receive him. And that's the source of true joy. Remember, Jesus described this in these parables, he was talking to the religious people. The religious people were the Uncle Ricos of Jesus' day. The religious people were the ones like, I'm very religious and I don't need God's help because I'm so religious. I don't need saving. And Jesus again and again loved the lost. He loved the ones who knew they needed saving. 
And so he gives those parables in Luke 15 where he says, there's rejoicing in heaven when someone has found their need of God and they've reconnected. And so as I think about this, I just want to invite you very clearly, um, if you're in a place where you haven't come to the point of just ultimate surrender, ultimate humbling before God, saying, God, I recognize that you are God and I am not that I've wandered and done my own thing and I've sinned and I deserve judgment. I deserve to live life without you, but still you pursue me and love God. You can, you can say that to him right where you sit. You can say that to him in the comfort of your own home by yourself in meditation. Just say, God, I recognize that I deserve justice, but you give grace. Will you forgive me? And he will. And the scripture says there's rejoicing in heaven when you humble yourself before him. 1 John 1 says there are really only two kinds of people. There are the people that deny their sin and they're in danger. And they're ridiculous and they look like Uncle Rico. And then there's the people who admit and confess their sin. If you admit, if you confess your sin, if you come to him and say, I need your help. I need guidance. I need healing. I need saving. He's faithful and just to forgive you, to heal you, to cleanse you. That's all he asks, that you would humble yourself before him. So again, as we think about joy in this holiday season, I've been looking all week long about all the different places that the word joy and the word rejoice appears in scripture. There's another interesting place in the gospel of Luke where the word comes up. And this is in the ministry of Jesus with his disciples. There's a scene, you might recognize the phrase, the sending of the 72. I don't know if that sounds familiar, Um, but his number of followers had grown and it wasn't just the 12 disciples, but now he had 72 people working with him and he sent them out two by two to minister to people, to proclaim the good news that the Messiah was here, to heal people. And they came back and they were rejoicing. They were rejoicing that they were able to set people free to heal them, that demons and spirits obeyed them, that they had the spiritual authority. And I think, I think that can be a good thing to celebrate, right? Like when you've genuinely helped someone, that's worthy of rejoicing, it's worthy of celebrations. So they come back rejoicing. They're celebrating that God has worked through them and they were able to help people and heal people. And Jesus says, that's, that's great, but don't, don't just rejoice in that. Don't just rejoice in that spiritual work that you're doing, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. He says, more than anything else, rejoice that you belong to God. That's the ultimate source of joy. So we're going to have a lot of distractions. We're going to have a lot of things that compete for our joy. A lot of reasons to get caught up in the how of rejoicing, but we've got to constantly keep looking back to the reason why we rejoice, and that is God himself. Let me pray for us. God, thank you that you love us. Thank you that you call us to yourself, that you speak to us. You're not silent, but you are constantly inviting us into a relationship. We thank you that we've heard your voice this morning. God, by your Holy Spirit, give us power to respond to humble ourselves before you, to rejoice in you and you alone. We pray in Jesus' name.